everyone. I'm Angela Davis, and right now, oh, thank you, thank you. You recognize my voice. We are live right now at the Minnesota State Fair for a special North Star Journey live conversation. And I am glad that everyone is listening today because we're going to be talking about something that is getting a lot of attention in Minnesota right now: emerging farming. As you all know, Minnesota has a vibrant agricultural heritage, and it's what we celebrate really well here at the Minnesota State Fair. But farming has often been inaccessible for non-traditional farmers. In fact, uh, listen to this. The last USDA, the, the last United States Department of Agriculture census conducted five years ago, found that less than 1% of Minnesota farmers were people of color. And I'm going to say that again. Out of all the farmers in Minnesota, less than 1% were people of color. And those numbers, they really don't align with what we know about our population. According to the 2020 general census, a little more than 22% of Minnesotans identify as people of color. So... How do we fix that gap? How do we help communities of colors, new Americans, women, any type of non-traditional grower get access to farming? That is what we're going to talk about today. The good news is that a lot of progress is being made. So now I would love to introduce you to our guests here on the stage with me. First, uh, there in the middle, I want you to meet Kazua Berry. Kazua is the... Yes, she deserves applause. She is the director of Big River Farms, which is an incubator farm near Marine on St. Croix in Washington County. She's also a farmer herself and the mother of a newborn. Doing a lot there, Kasua. Welcome to North Star Journey Live. Good to meet you. Nice to meet you too, Angela. Thank you. Yeah. Next to Kazua, on this side, closest to me, this is Marcus Carpenter. Marcus is uh, the brainchild behind... Route One. Do you say Route One or Route One? Route One. Route One. Okay, we'll be Route One, (laughs) uh, which is a new startup designed to be a hub of resources for BIPOC emerging farmers in Minnesota. Marcus's farm is in Hamill, which is on the western outskirts of the Twin Cities uh, in Hennepin County. So glad you're here, Marcus. Thank you. Thank you, Angela. And there on the end, we have Patrice Bailey. Patrice is, yes, another hardworking person here, an assistant commissioner with the Minnesota Department of Agriculture. Uh, Patrice is very passionate about his work. He oversees the Emerging Farmers Working Group and the Emerging Farmer Office in the MDA, which we're going to talk about more. It's the first in the nation to have an office dedicated to helping emerging farmers. Welcome, Patrice. Thank you so much. Go, Minnesota. We're leaders. Go, go, go. The good stuff starts here. (laughs) So, Patrice, I'm going to begin with you. And let's talk about uh, that number that I I referenced in the introduction, that that very dismal 2017 USDA farm census. It also, at that time, found that there were only 39 black farmers in the entire state of Minnesota. The whole state. The whole state. I mean, are, are you kidding me? I mean, how do you... Why are there so few? Like, what is going on? How do you begin to explain why that would be the case? You know, that number is, uh, is quite staggering. Um, you know, we have definitely uh, gone over that number so many times. I think that, you know, there's a lot of different factors that are going on. You have those that own uh, land and those who do not. Those are renters. Um, and there's a, a huge trust issue when, when it comes to the federal government you know, this uh, census, the agriculture census, unlike the, the, the regular census, is every five years. 
So we already did the, the fifth year, uh, which was, you know, this year. But those numbers won't come out until January of 2024. But hopefully that number is beyond 39. But You believe we're going to see some improvement? I think you're going to see a lot of improvement. I think there's a lot of things that's happened from 2019 to where we are today in terms of lots of change. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're hoping that that number continues to grow up. But, I mean, we are, are, are seeing those numbers right here that are escalating because people are looking for an entry into agriculture, wherever that happens to be. So I love to dig into history and to look at, like, how do we end up here? So as we look at the history of farming um, nationally, um, history shows that, you know, around the year 1900, that there were actually hundreds of thousands of black owned farms across America. But over the last 100 years, black farmer ownership declined dramatically. Black farmers went from owning about one in every seven farms to only about one in every 100. And what's your understanding of what happened? Why we are seeing that stark decline? Well, you know, that's a lot of, uh, a lot of history. You know, some people talk about 40 acres in the mule, you know, that promise uh, since slavery uh, but that still hasn't been achieved from that time. And it's really funny in a way because if you're thinking about 1900, you're talking about about a million acres that black farmers used to have. And now today we're probably looking at about 30 to 40,000. That's a huge drop. But I think a lot of those things of eminent domain from, um, you know, people... You know, going through the 80s crisis of uh, the foreclosures, I mean, there's just been a lot of reasons why uh, those farms have decimated. And um, land ownership. The land ownership. played a role. In- land ownership plays a huge role because when you own land, you have that generational wealth that continues to prosper. And that's what you're seeing with other farms in Minnesota. Unlike black farms... Uh, you know, you don't see that same idea of looking beyond today in order to be able to look at how do we sustain farms that are not 50 years ago, but 50 years from now. Yeah. And there's also a history of uh, credit and loans being denied. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And this has been a huge uh, issues of uh, lots of lawsuits, you know, especially in our indigenous cultures of, of those practices that continue to happen. Um, people being swindled out of their, you know, their inheritance and, mm-hmm. and, you know, various acres of land. So, you know, we still continue to fight that, um, that issue today. But I think that USDA has definitely put a lot of focus on changing that practice. So you're seeing a lot of different programs that are geared to emerging farmers and, and, um, and uh, urban agriculture where there's lots more money. Uh, and interest. There's interest. People want to yeah. farm. People right. want to farm, and we they- we have the down payment assistance that has exasperated the numbers. Yeah, mm-hmm. Marcus, uh, I, w- I want you to jump in here. What goes through yeah. your mind when you hear about the history and these numbers, yeah. and and like the access to land and land ownership, and people with the skills and ability to farm but not having access to it? Yeah, I think, and I think Patrice brings up some very good points. I think also one of the things we have to factor in is is the Great Migration, right? When many of the uh, African Americans in our country moved north, being able to ensure that those stories around family and legacy you know, stayed strong in the South while we built economic power in the North. 
But um, <clears throat> I'm fortunate enough to be a, a fifth-generation farm kid from northeast Arkansas. And so uh, <laughs> hey, we've got some Arkansas, Arkansas folks in the house. house. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> there we go. But, um, but no, so I think, I think it really, uh, you know, we, we just need to emphasize the fact of, um, you know, the history, the rich history that people of color have in terms of farming across our country and being able to leverage that legacy, leverage those, those family stories into bringing in more generations of of young farmers. And this is personal to you. Yeah, I have in my notes here that at one point your family owned one of the largest black family farms in America. Your, your great-grandfather uh, had 20 acres in Arkansas in 1917 and then grew it to 100-plus acres by 1936. Yeah. So tell me about your memories of that or this, this, the meaning of all this to your family. Yeah, uh, so, so gr- like I said, growing up on the farm uh, for us, um, and it was it was the largest family farm in Northeast Arkansas, so I don't want to I don't want to get that confused with the <laughs> in world. your neck of the woods. <laughs> in our neck of the things. woods, yes, okay. <laughs> yes. But but for us, Angela, uh, you know, being able to have that place to call home, it was so grounding for us as youth and as cousins. We always knew that when we could go back to the farm, that was our place of security. It was our place of of hope. You know. Um, having those farm values of hard work and trust and transparency and perseverance, being able to leverage those values uh, as uh, a family of color, um, we felt really kind of put us on a trajectory to be successful no matter what area of life you're in. So although today we're talking about farming, uh, the farm discussion really has a lot of tie-ins with things like health equity, with things like uh, job security and economic development and things like workforce development and just uh, prosperity in general for people of color. So the farming discussion, it's important um, to talk about how, uh, you know, we continue to, to access land and to uh, increase the, the knowledge that we have of the land, but it has more to do with just farming. It has to do with food and all the other things that I mentioned. And we should mention Route 1, the name yes. of your business is the name of what? Yeah, so, so Route 1 is the old country road in Poinsett County, Arkansas, and it runs uh, right down the middle of our family farm. Like Angela mentioned, we have um, my great-grandfather Felix bought his first 20 acres back in 1917. He grew it to 180-plus acres in 1936 before he passed away. And Route 1 is the old country road that runs right down the middle of our farm. So for us, when we launched the business, uh, we wanted to to give that nod that. to the family farm. I love that. Uh, Kazua, we know that black farmers have a unique history uh, in this country, but they're, on, they're not the only farmers uh, who've been denied access to the fields. How would you def- define this term, emerging farmers? Like people who are not like, what does that mean? What's an emerging farmer? Yes, that's a great question because there's a lot of um, technicality to that term. And I would prefer, out of all of the terminologies that are used to describe farmers, emerging farmers is the more amiable term because other terms that are used are socially disadvantaged. And I find that term more difficult to chew on because a lot of our farmers, yes, they're emerging into the farming world here in the United States, but we also have to recognize that a lot of our farmers they farmed somewhere else in another country. Mm-hmm. So they farm many, many years. They've come from generational um, farms, and they come here, and they're considered an emerging farmer because they have not farmed in the state. And then there's also 
it's good to note that a lot of our farmers, even though they're emerging, considering emerging farmers, we are uh, scholars. We hold uh, medical degrees. We work in IT. Like we work in these prominent spaces, but yet when you identify as an emerging farmer, sometimes there are some stigma that comes with that that note in that concept. And so, like I said, there's a lot to that question, but it's still much better than socially disadvantaged and other terminologies. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. And uh, tell us about Big River Farms. Yeah, so Big River Farms is an incubator training program located in Marine on St. Croix. Um, we have about 15 to 20 farm teams every year. And when we say teams, it's because um, one team can typically be like one farmer or a family of 10 you know, people. So, and we provide land access as well as um, you know, ongoing. Uh, we have a curriculum that they, have, they adhere to. And we also are organic certified. So farmers coming into our program, they're not just learning how to farm, but they're learning how to become organic certified. Mm -hmm. And then they learn how to have their markets and build. So it's not just about learning how to farm and grow food for yourself in the community, but it's also about learning how to grow a business. So finding markets that are suitable for you or exploring markets. And we work with organizations like MDA as well as, you know, University of Minnesota and a lot of other um, agricultural partners. But one thing that's really important about our program is that we provide land, um, we provide language accessibility, which is a huge... Interpreters. Interpreters, right. and also like materials that are translated. But a lot of applications here, you know, even um, the down payment assistance, like it's great, but in the organic certification, it's great, but there's no... Like if you are a farmer who don't speak English and you don't read in English... It's just really impossible for you to be able to apply for those things. And right. so there's, like, um, not, not possible for you to access these resources. So no matter how many resources we have out there, if there's no language protection, accessibility as a resource, mm -hmm. then uh, these farmers are not going to be able to access the resources available. Marcus, you're nodding there. You've had some firsthand experience with uh, that barrier. <laughs> yes, yes. And I absolutely agree with what Kasu was saying. I think... You know, the, the good news is, is that those resources are available through, you know, through the Department of Agriculture and some of the other resources. But the gap really lies in uh, folks who need the resources don't necessarily have all the skill sets in order to be able to access those resources, which is, which is uh, why it's important to bridge that gap. Well, as we talk uh, with our live audience, we also have some videos to share with you today. We've got uh, three you're going to see in the next uh, few minutes here. So we're going to turn your attention to the screen. Uh, we want to take people. We can take folks to Big River Farms uh, for a few minutes through the magic of uh, video and audio. We sent one of our NPR photojournalists uh, out there to talk with one of Big River's longtime farmers, May Lee. So uh, let's listen to that. Big River Farms has been around for about 20 years, and May Lee was one of our first growers. May is actually the first certified organic Hmong farmer in the United States. I am mom. I coming from Laos. My, my mother we went to a doctor, and they, they said she got pesticide on her body. It causing cancer, and she passed away with that with the pesticide. I will recommend farmers not to spray too much. Please, if you lost someone like my mom, it's really painful. 
is really important to have a diverse community um, of farmers and that they have the access and opportunity to be able to do that when they aren't resourced with family land here or other connections and opportunities. Oh, so beautiful. Food is so connecting and a lot of growers have said that like that's a way that they feel together. It's so nice. And they're really beautiful and I got good food and I see everything growing and so so keep my mind busy and so I don't remember my mom much. And so that they'll be to me. So May's uh, farm called Mampa's Garden is actually a fixture at many of the farmer's markets uh, in St. Paul, as well as on the east side uh, of the Twin Cities. Uh, but Kazua, I, I really, you know, I want to really reiterate what uh, your colleague Summer said there, that one of the barriers, again, is just really having access to land. So let's talk about the different ways you can access land and, and traditionally what has been problematic for people who are just trying to you know, get the land so they can do the work. Yeah, absolutely. So um, land access is challenging even at Big River Farms because we are about 45 minutes from the Twin Cities one way. Um, And many of our farmers work full-time jobs. Mm -hmm. And so they're coming and they're still farming and it's still a lot to travel. So ways that you can access land here is like through renting, through uh, buying, through cooperative farm, you know, land spaces, um, there are a lot of other ways to access land, but one thing that Patrice mentioned was like the inability to build that generational wealth and equity if you don't mm-hmm. own land. And the problem with land rental is that a lot of farmers are at risk for not being able to farm there consistently. So there's a lot of spaces that, that do through eminent domain that they're, they're like forced out of those spaces that they've cultivated for many, many years. So when you are farming, you can't think about it as a way where I'm just going to farm this year and I'm done with it. You're building a relationship with the land. It's a very intimate process. And many farmers, you know, with uh, crops and equity in crops, a lot of times like asparagus, do you know that, you know, it takes three years for you to be able to grow asparagus to be able to harvest you can't harvest prior to that so farmers who are renting land they cannot Mm. be they're they're not able to build these type of perennial systems uh, because there is no security for them and a lot of farmers risk you know just that subjection to being able to be removed from these land spaces so like the they don't have any ownership or any say even if they're renting so we want to put a higher emphasis on land ownership but that is not to say that we're knocking the um, rental piece because that's also important for transition, right? right? Like talking about how do you access land. Oftentimes, in order for them to build equity, they do need to have records. They do need to be able to have that income and be able to have some kind of like way to budget so that when they go to the bank, you know, they can access loans or things like that to be able to buy land. So there's like a lot of process in order for people to even be able to buy land. But... One of the biggest barriers right now is like land outside of the cities because they're not um, there's not a lot of land in the cities, you know. Right. So you have to go further out into rural communities. So Patrice, let's hear what the Minnesota Department of Agriculture is is doing, and 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 tell us more about why you started the Emerging Farmers Working Group and um, that program and the new office that you're opening. Yeah. The new office is, um, you know, we actually received that office about a year and a half ago from the legislature, and it came with one person. But obviously, one person can't be everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, And so 
uh, when I was appointed in 2019, one of the first things that I was charged with was to uh, go around the state and uh, talk to various people about what are the barriers into agriculture. And what we started to see around the state is that a lot of the barriers are pretty much the same, whether you're in Duluth or Halleck or Moorhead, uh, down to Rochester, you know, the whole issue around um, land and finances are always one and two in that order. Uh, so a lot of things that uh, we had to do was in cooperation with uh, markets in Kazua in order to get the word out, in order to get people to understand that sometimes the biggest barrier could be yourself in terms of sort of blocking where those opportunities come from. But as a cooperative, as a coalition, uh, we get a chance to be able to, uh, to make a lot of those things happen. But in the last four years, I mean, so much has happened. We've actually uh, started this working group. And then the working group went to uh, the down payment assistance program. And that went to, um, you know, just so many other urban grants. And, and now uh, this office uh, is actually an expansion to the what we received uh, a year and a half ago. So now we get to hire uh, two more people. So what's the benefit to the state if we find out in a couple of months, well, now we have, you know, a 10%, 20% increase in the number of farmers. How do we benefit? Well, I always look at it from my, you know, look at it through my lens because I didn't grow up on a farm. I grew up in Harlem, five blocks from the Apollo. Oh, God. Obviously, it was just nothing but concrete. But how do we look at those percentages that go up? you know, it actually adds to how we tell that story. And I, I really believe in the power of telling this story about other people's uh, circumstances of how we can be able to move from uh, a consumer to a producer, a producer to an owner, uh, so that people can have self-sufficiency as they want to be able to rent land or own land and then uh, be able to leave that for their kids. Mm-hmm. You know, as we talked about generational wealth. Yeah. Marcus, what are the, the farmers you're talking to? What are they saying about why they even want to do this? It sounds like it's hard. Sure. It, it is. It's very hard. <laughs> Any farmer you talk to will tell you it's hard work. But to, to kind of piggyback on, on Patrice's answer, really the increase in farm means increase in food. And we, at Route 1, we talk, and I know Big River Farm talks about this as well. We talk about culturally relevant food. And so, once again, this whole discussion of farming and agriculture, for Route 1, it's about increasing food access, specifically within communities of color. So if we look at the statistics, you know, our Latinx community, they're 1.2 times more likely to have things like kidney disease and chronic liver disease and heart disease. If you look at the American Indian population, that number is up to six times. And so for the state of Minnesota, what that really means is we're talking about $2.26 billion worth of health care, right? So, so if you're increasing farmers, specifically farmers of color, what you're doing is you're reducing health care costs, you're increasing health equity, you're increasing job security and workforce development. So once again, the, the discussions around farming and ag, but it has all these different layers to it. Mm. And uh, Patricia, I should note here at the State Fairgrounds, uh, 
your boss's boss, the United <laughs> States Department of Agriculture, uh, Secretary Tom Vilsack, was here at the fair yesterday. I missed him. Here. I didn't know he was here. But uh, apparently he said that the U.S. US farmers drew a record income last fall, uh, last year overall. Uh, farmers in America drew a record income last year overall, which is great news. But almost 90 percent of that money went to roughly the top 25 percent of farmers. The top yeah. quarter of farmers uh, did well. Almost 50 percent of farmers didn't make any money at all. So half of the farmers across the country uh, did not do well at all. That's stark. So if you're doing well, you're doing really well. But half. Most farmers are not doing well. Yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah, he was here uh, yesterday, uh, Secretary Vilsack, um, really touring, you know, some of the agriculture, the dairy building he was at, um, you know, just looking at sort of the, the topography of uh, and hearing, you know, from other farmers as to what's happening, what's working, what's not working. Uh, when you look at those numbers of the top tier, um, you know, we have so many baby boomers in Minnesota that are retiring. And as the baby boomers can, uh, retire, you have this resurgence or a surgence of, um, of emerging farmers. But you're looking at, you know, 0.03% uh, of people of color are not uh, farming. They don't have any land. Uh, so if you're looking at the other 99%, uh, it's mostly white farmers that are doing well. And because they have the land, they have the equity, they have the relationships. So how do you change that, or how do you close the gap? Well, one of the things that we're doing to close the gap is some of the things that we had talked about in terms of uh, being able to acknowledge more uh, farmers of color, uh, being able to have uh, more cooperatives come about, um, but it's also uh, telling people about the resources that are already existing, um, of to how, know that they can get right. assistance and training and because, learn the business. That's right, right. because some of the other barriers uh, to, to agriculture is information. Right. Have, of knowing when uh, you know, so many grants are out. I, mean, I have a list of grants right in front of me that are for the month of August. And it's, a, it's, a page, it's two pages worth of grants that are out the door or things that are coming through. And many may go unclaimed because people don't know. Right, Marcus? And, and it's, it's the, people, the people that don't know and, and like Patrice said, his, their, their office can only do so much, right? So right. one of the things that we try to focus on is how do we help folks who want access to that money? Right. How do we help them get that money? And, and being able to put together the right presentations and paperwork in order to mm-hmm. be able to make that happen is really important. Well, can, can you read one of the grants? What's on the piece of paper there? <laughs> the long, give me an example of a grant that's available. Okay, right. so we have, uh, we have an Agri uh, Livestock Investment Grant, and these are grants that deal with infrastructure, uh, and equipment that improves and updates or modernizes livestock operations. That deadline is October tw- uh, 12th of this year at 4 p.m. So if and I needed to upgrade maybe a piece of tractor, that yeah. there's a grant that might pay for that? Well, there's, there's actually a grant that would pay for that. Um, and, you know, we're talking about improvements to an already existing yes. um, operation. But then a lot of people who do not have livestock, they also have produce. So mm-hmm. then you're looking at uh, agri-value-added grants, and, and these are grants that support uh, adding value to your already existing um, operation, and that's through processing. 
the same deadline, October 12th. Mm -hmm. So these are just some of the opportunities uh, that we can be able to, to assist. And we also work with our partners about these grants. And, you know, I have, I'm not great with grant applications. What I hear about it is they can be difficult and hard. To, is there help that, that you are aware of, uh, Kazua? Or where would someone get help filling out a grant application if they've never done it? That is a great question. We do provide some help with those type of grants. We also provide funding through uh, USDA, um, you know, sponsored a lot of our programming. And so we provide programming through technical assistance or mentors who can actually help farmers um, apply for these grants and access these. But sometimes it is challenging because... Um, the language can be hard. And I'm not just talking about like a different language. I'm talking about simplified English, yes. right? Like that is even a hard mm -hmm. thing to to have written out. And that's a skill to have is to be able to communicate across in English so that people can understand you. Uh, mm -hmm. Most farmers are not going to be able to understand the technical languages that a grant is asking. And right. so you spend more time trying to figure out what the heck that's <laughs> paperwork is saying right. than to actually be filling it out. And Marcus, what have you seen with grant applications and what help is available? Yeah, it's the same, same thing. Um, you know, with, with our farmers, we, we have our Emerging Farmers Institute, which is really around supporting farmers, not necessarily mm -hmm. growing good food, but doing the types of things that we're talking about. And most farmers are just like any other skill set, like a, like a plumber or an electrician or a doctor. They, they would rather be doing their skill yes. and growing good food versus handling the business aspect. But they can get mentors. You can, Correct. You can get help. Yes. yes. Right? That's what I want people to know. All right. If you're just yes. joining us, uh, you're listening to a conversation recorded live at the Minnesota State Fair. We're talking about how to grow the diversity of Minnesota's farmers with three great guests. Here with me at the NPR booth at the fairgrounds, we have Kazua Berry, the director of Big River Farms, which is an incubator for people new to farming located in northern Washington County. Also, Marcus Carpenter, the director of Route One, a farming center that wants to open up new doors for farmers of color to get back to the land and grow sustainable food for their communities, as well as Patrice Bailey there on the end, an assistant commissioner in the Minnesota Department of Agriculture. He's a key leader in pushing for more pathways for emerging farmers in our state. Now I want to take some time to listen and to watch another video story that uh, our producers created for this event. This time we're going to visit an urban farm you may have heard of. Run by oh, is that Michael Cheney in the audience there in the in the orange jersey? Run by Michael Cheney and the team at Project Sweetie Pie. Take a listen. So I'm going to give you all some tools, and you know we got to make the garden look beautiful, right? We're here at uh, Pillsbury United Farms, and and this is how we hope to change the future. It's like something to do, and you're helping the world. By planting a garden or helping with the garden instead of just playing video games and you're not doing anything. I feel like this is the one thing that is constant for all of us. The food, the soil, um, needing it to be healthy. You know, people ask me, am I a grower? And I say, yeah, I grow, but that's not really what I'm doing. I'm an egg patriot. I'm using agriculture as a way and a means to really improve democracy and to get people to realize that civic action is the breakfast of champions. So you want to try these? You want to try? That's it. You are very, very fast. 
because each one of these weeds is a competitor. We grow children. We support the community with youth eating healthy. Uh, Project Sweetie Pie has been around a long time. Uh, it is great hearing and seeing those kids there, obvious, uh, having that ob- opportunity to get your hands in the dirt. It makes a difference. And Marcus, I know that you are really interested and focused on working with youth uh, in your programs at Route 1. Why is that important to you? Yeah, it's, it's so important for all the reasons Michael mentioned, and, and they're just doing some phenomenal work uh, at Project Sweetie Pie. But uh, our organization uh, has an, as a youth academy as well. It's called the Route 1 Youth Academy. And it's really about getting our youth, getting their hands in the dirt. And there's just something spiritual and magical about once you stick your hands in the soil. And one of the things that we talk to our youth about is not necessarily – you know, we're not trying to push kids into agriculture and make them farmers, but it's really about helping our youth understand what's possible for them. And so when we have youth where we can get out, get their hands in the dirt, get them farming, get them understanding the life cycle of, of produce and vegetation, it's really more than, than that. It's really about how do we uh, make a plan for, for our life and envision the future and think about what could be. And that's at the core of it all. That's what farming is about. How do they react to seeing things grow? And, and are they patient? Or Oh, well, absolutely. They love it. They <laughs> love it, Angela. Um, you know, and, it, and I think it's, it really comes down to opportunity. So Patrice mentioned something earlier in terms of how do we grow more farmers? And, and it's doing things like this with the communication and being able to expose our youth to, uh, to opportunities to farm. And so if we can continue to have discussions with the, the greater farm community about how we can bring black, brown, and indigenous youth out to their farms, I think we can continue to grow more farmers because mm. they love that opportunity when they get out on the farm. Uh, another well-established uh, incubator farm here in the Twin Cities is the Good Acre, which is close to here. It's just on the other side of the state fairgrounds. And one of the things they try to do uh, to aggregate food grown by the farmers that they uh, are assisting, um, how, how important is, is wholesale, uh, Kazua, when we talk about wholesale, and how do emerging farmers tap into those kinds of markets? Well, market in general is super important. You know, going back to the statistics that you mentioned earlier about 50% not making an income, like, that's bizarre, but the disparities and the gap is real. Like, that's that's something that um, is a struggle, and um, wholesale is is a great opportunity for farmers to be able to, um, you know, grow a lot of food and move a lot of food. So the Good Acre does a really good job on aggregating that food um, and kind of finding outlets for those those specific foods that they're getting from farmers so that farmers aren't constantly trying to hustle and do that. But then one limitation for wholesale is that farmers um, don't have you know, access to coolers or transportation, like a big enough vehicle mm. to be able to grow food and fit in all other vehicle and take it to a certain location. And also, um, you know, food safety is an issue, and that's something that MDA, you know, tries to work really hard on in ensuring that all of the uh, farmers are in adherence to that. Mm-hmm. But also um, wholesale, though, with a lot of farmers, it doesn't really give them the true dollar value for their labor. So that's a challenge for them is that farmers can grow a lot of food, 
for these host cell uh, spaces, but they're not really being compensated. The way you cannot treat um, market farmers and farmers who are growing on a small scale the same way that you treat corporate farmers. And a lot of times these wholesale spaces, you know, grocery chains or all these other spaces will treat that. And when we do that, it's not equitable. Um, And so really needing to revise and revisit those systems and making sure that we're equitable with all the different types of farmers that we're, you know, purchasing from and receiving food from. Because the food group, we also buy food from farmers wholesale and we uh, donate it to our food banks, our uh, food shelf partners, and give it to them for free. Mm. But we don't make money from it. We're a nonprofit. So there's Mm. also a limitation on how much we can pay our farmers as well, too. So you have this balance of farmers, like the communities needing to be fed Farmers needing to be compensated in a way where they can make a livable wage, right? Because it's not some, it's, it's not a lot only of time. about, yes, right. you're not just making money from farming or like buying land, but you need to be able to sustain that right. as a farmer. But most farmers are working other jobs and then they're also farming. And I've, I've heard too that a lot of the farm to school programs and the food shelves, a lot of the, the fresh produce and food that they get comes from emerging farmers. Yep, absolutely. Right. Um, Patrice, as we look at the federal government again, uh, Congress is uh, negotiating on the new federal farm bill. Um, do you feel like they, they seem to see emerging farmers? Do you see them prioritizing emerging farmers and, and what is possible? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, Senator Tina Smith and uh, Senator Klobuchar has definitely uh, traveled around the state, uh, went to the Good Acre um, to talk to different farmers. Kazua was uh, at the, the Good Acre when Senator Tina Smith was here, I think, three months ago. And the focus on the new uh, farm bill, which is going to be reauthorized, uh, is going to focus on local and mid-sized farmers um, because that's a, a, a block, a constituency that definitely hasn't uh, been Got the attention. acknowledged at all. Right, right. So, so you, you see the future is looking brighter. Oh, Big time. For the small farmers. For the false, small farmers also with more money. You know, there's more aid that's actually going to be set aside. So definitely looking forward for that to be uh, reauthorized. All right. Um, we have one more video I want to share with you. This time we're going to take you to Dream of Wild Health, which is one of the, um, one of the only Native American-led farms in the Twin Cities. And they grow hundreds of pounds of produce at their land in Hugo to distribute through their indigenous food share program. And they are also the caretakers of hundreds of indigenous seeds given to them by a Potawatomi elder. Here's a look at their farm. We bring out youth every summer to our summer programs and teach them about agriculture, um, seeds, uh, cooking, healthy eating, um, and learning their indigenous or native traditional ways. Like BIPOC communities, you're introduced to so many harmful foods because all the organic food is so expensive. And so like to be able to provide this like organic food to the people and this native food to the people, it's just really nice. Learning about what nutrition value each vegetable has and what importance it gives to our body and to the land was a really shocking to me because I didn't grow up eating that type of stuff. Because at the cities, it's mostly fast food. 
So being here, it really changed me, getting more into the land and feeling the soil and how to harvest. I feel like each year I come here to the farm, I change because I become a better person. My favorite are the cherry tomatoes. <laughs> yeah. Who doesn't love a cherry tomato? Uh, Dream of Wild Health was able to purchase their farmland outright. But that's not necessarily true for Minnesota's 11 Native nations uh, whose land is often held uh, in trust. And that keeps them from accessing many of the traditional financing programs offered by the USDA. So Patrice, uh, what needs to change when it comes to indigenous communities and farming? What are the barriers there? A lot of the barriers are uh, the treaties. The treaties. Uh, making sure that the treaties are upheld so that uh, the recognition for the 11 tribes that are in Minnesota or around the country uh, are actually going to be uh, recognized. But, um, you know, really looking at a lot of, uh, a lot of the native uh, wild rice and different foods that uh, culturally specific foods uh, definitely uh, needs to, to have more Acknowledgement. I think a lot of it is really seeking out those particular opportunities for, for Native uh, um, foods that they have. And, you know, within um, Indigenous communities, um, fishing and hunting um, has a different meaning to them than maybe what, what the USDA yeah. sees. Of course. Uh, a lot of it, is, I mean, it's is definitely tradition. And, you know, we always stress, you know, the tribal state relations training for all employees, um, you know, at the state to be able to remember what those traditions are around mm-hmm. fishing and foraging and, and hunting, uh, why that's so dear to uh, all tribal members, because it's, it's, it's part of the, the culture. Mm-hmm. And they try to continue to keep the culture intact, uh, you know, especially with a digital uh, generation that we're in right now. Let's talk about the weather, Kazua. Uh, you can have a lot of expertise in farming, but you come to Minnesota, very unique climate. Um, so training becomes very important for uh, growers. And um, how do you help new Minnesotans uh, learn to farm here? Yes. So Minnesotans, you know that we have a very short growing or warm season so season extension is really important so what is season extension it's just the opportunity or ability to grow food outside of those months so like typically like late may until the end of september we might get a snowstorm september we don't know you know we live in minnesota i have a may birthday it has snowed on my birthday well there you go so like (laughs) those are challenges for um, us to be able to grow foods such as uh, tomatoes or peppers, you know, things that require a lot of time to grow. So we often start our, we have greenhouses at Big Bird Farms, and we teach farmers how to grow food in a greenhouse uh, before it's transplanted into the field. And oftentimes I've had farmers who are from another country, and they come, and they come and see the greenhouse and it's new to them because they can just grow directly from seed where they're from. But here, if you grow tomatoes from seed, you might not get any fruits this year. You might get beautiful leaves and flowers, but not fruits. Mm-hmm. And so really teaching the skills of how to utilize these spaces in order for them to extend their growing season to increase the capacity for us to grow food. But one thing that's been also really challenging is the extreme heat. 
So on a day right. that, is, that would say right. is 90 degrees, the index can be over 100 degrees. And so there's been like some climate experiences that has changed the way that we need to also grow food as well. At Big River Farms, there's, they can grow in the field, but now we're teaching farmers to be what we call climate smart, where we are having farmers grow their herbs and their lettuces where it's kind of shaded because then, you know, they're not so stressed out. And then if you buy a tomato and there's some green shouldering and the tomato isn't fully red, it's because of the heat stress. So, like, there's, like, a lot of, you know, dynamics that this heat is also causing an impact on the way that we grow food as well. So it's not just the season extension, but how we are responding to the climate stresses. But if you're informed and you're trained, then you can be successful. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. How have you handled training and, and this, the climate here in Minnesota and how it might be different than what people are used to? Yeah, I think, I think it, to, to Kazua's point, is really having those discussions around how to grow in the Minnesota climate. And another thing that we're doing at Route 1 is, is really leveraging innovation when it comes to farming as well. So how do we not only grow good food during the, the summer months and the harvest months, but how do we also grow good food in the winter? And so that means investigating mm. urban farming platforms, things like freight farms and greenhouses and some of the other places where we can grow inside. And so that opens up a whole new uh, door for our communities of color of really figuring out ways in which they can um, leverage some of these new technologies when it comes to agriculture. And then, uh, Patrice, I want to ask you, is there a, a conference coming up in November that you want people to know about? Is there, <laughs> does someone have a conference? I had in my notes here. The food group has a conference yeah. with, with Big River Farms. You have but a, no, a conference? Yeah, yeah it's an emerging farmer things. conference. I believe it's November 11th to the 12th. No, it's the That's first a, weekend of November. So I okay, think first like weekend. Second okay. or third or third or fourth, whatever, that Friday and Saturday. And what happens there? Oh, just lots of things happen. There's lots of uh, exchange of ideas. There's a listening session that MDA does, uh, working with Kazua and the food group and the Big River Farms. Um, and it's not just for Minnesota. I mean, we have people that come from Wisconsin, Ohio. I mean, so there's lots of uh, best practices that are being shared um, at this conference. And I have a question, too. If I am a landowner in a rural county in Minnesota, and I want to be part of the solution, what can I do? If I've got land that's not being used, and I know that there are farmers out there who are looking for land, what can a landowner do? Marcus? Yes, you can contact us at Route 1. <laughs> we'd, right? be, we'd be happy to talk to any, any of those farmers. Connect. And it, and it, Yes, to connect. Yep. And it's really about having the conversation. Right. How, do we, how do we connect and pass that, that land to someone who's interested in farming it? And Kazua? So there's organizations like Land Stewardship Project that you can connect with, that can connect. You can connect with Marcus. Um, a lot of people contact us all the time. But before you do that, you need to ask yourself as a landowner, are you ready to give up some of those Um, flexibility and space to allow farmers to grow the way that they need to grow or are you going to micromanage them so that's challenging when farmers are trying to grow the way that they need to grow and then you also have to ask yourself do you have the appropriate infrastructure meaning do you have like a wash station facility do you have wells you know irrigation is really important do you have a place where they can store things if you don't have these things, are you willing to explore um, with the USDA or MDA in order for you to get those infrastructures 
to be successful, so the farmers can be successful. So it's not just mm-hmm. about the utilization of land, but it's also about having these infrastructures that are really important in order for us to grow for crops for human consumption, because all of those are required in order for farmers to be successful. And then, uh, Patrice, uh, from the Ag Department, what advice would you have for someone that's interested in learning more and, and being a part of the solution? I would say contact myself or Lillian Otenio, the engagement outreach coordinator. We also have a uh, program called FarmLink. And FarmLink is sort of like a a way of uh, of listing your land and letting people know that um, it's for sale and different um, attributes as to what that land is going to be. Either it's going to be a transfer, it's going to be a sale. And then people can actually make a connection through that Mm -hmm. particular Opportunity. So you grew up in New York. Why are you so invested in farming? What is it? You know, a lot of times when I when I travel the state, I get a chance to see a lot of stuff. But I'm always thinking about, you know, the kid that that never left the circumference of their zip code, of you know being able to see what canola looks like or sugar beets that turn into sugar. And you know, I'm always thinking about, wow, this would be a great experience for you know a kid that just doesn't know where their food comes from, but the food is sitting right there. So it's really, uh, um, I'm always doing things with intention when I'm thinking about ways in which you're going to be able to share that experience. Mm -hmm. And Kazua and Marcus, uh, as farmers, I just want to know, what's your favorite thing to grow? Kazua? I love growing ground cherries. I don't know if you've ever had ground cherries. And Angela, I should have brought. I, don't, I, I you should have smuggled you some because I don't know. What's a, a ground cherry? It's really it's in the tomato family and it grows in a husk. So a lot of people think they're tomatillos, but they're not. And they oh, I've are, seen those in the grocery store. They're, they're well, yeah. some of them are gooseberries, so they're more tart. Mm-hmm. But ground cherries is like golden on the inside of the husk, and it is. It tastes like pineapple. It is nature's yeah. candy. It is so great. I can't send my kids to go harvest for market because they will eat them all. Come back? Yeah, so we will make no and, money. But, and then um, yeah. is that another question? Your favorite thing to grow, so the ground cherry, what's your favorite thing to eat that you grow? Same thing? No, I love eating any like greens variety, especially a mustard green that I can pickle. I know about the mustard green. Yeah, we had those in Virginia. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay, good. And Marcus, what about you? What's your favorite Ooh. thing to grow? I would say both answers are tomatoes and tomatoes. Any type of tomatoes. Really? Um, there is nothing like going out in the field and harvesting a fresh tomato and it's eating just, it in the field. Oh, it right. Is, Phenomenal, right. it's, and it's the anticipation of growing that beautiful tomato and having it for a snack. All right, I think we just came full circle there. Yeah. Uh, this has been a fantastic conversation, and uh, I'm going to wrap it up here. And just so happy that I had a chance to meet each of you. We've been talking with Kazua Berry, Marcus Carpenter, and Patrice Bailey. Remember those names, and thank you to our crowd here at the State Fair. You're such good listeners. I love a good listener. (laughs) And now you are empowered to go forth, appreciate all the produce and animals and farmers all around us here at the State Fairgrounds. Uh, If you want to support Emerging Farmers, be sure to check out um, my talk show page on the NPR website. We're at nprnews.org. You go there, hit a button, and you'll find my talk show page. And we have uh, lots of links. We're going to be putting lots of links there to all of the organizations that we mentioned today. You'll be able to see all that again. Thanks for listening, and you've been a great audience. Have a great day at the Great Minnesota Get-Together. Okay.